Let's go ahead and get into John chapter 12 as we continue through the Gospel of John. Today we find ourselves nearing the end of chapter 12. There'll be one more message from this chapter, but we're going to look at verses 37 through 43. As you turn there, I want to ask you a question to be thinking about this morning. You, I'm, sure, I'm sure at some point in your life you've considered how convenient it might be or how meaningful it might be for God to grant you a specific request pertaining to something miraculous. I don't want to, I don't want to um, take this too far, but you know, we all grew up thinking about the genie and the lamp and what would, what would you wish for if you got three wishes, right? Well, if you kind of borrow from that idea a little bit, if you could ask God to do one miraculous thing, what would it be? And why? Why would you ask God to do that one particular thing? Can you narrow it down to one? Maybe it's difficult to narrow it down to one. But in our passage today, we're going to look at the impact of miraculous signs, or as we might find out, the lack of impact of the miraculous signs. Sometimes we get into the thought that, 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 that you know, we, we have people that we care about that aren't following the Lord. Maybe they haven't believed in the gospel and, and they're not convinced that this is true or, or whatever the case may be. And we just think, man, if God would do something miraculous, maybe it would open their eyes. Well, let's look at John chapter 12 together, starting in verse 37. It says, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. This is our passage today. Let's pray, and we'll look at this together. Father, we thank you for your word. It's true. It's life-giving. It's life-changing. It's living and active, and it has the power to open eyes, to open hearts, to bring salvation, to bring conviction of sin, and to enlighten us along the path as we follow you. So God, I pray that your word would speak to us this morning and give us insight into what you want us to hear this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's talk about this passage a little bit. You should have a handout that we gave you on the way in. We're going to go ahead and fill in some of the blanks on there. The first, the first point on the handout is this. Miraculous signs weren't enough to convince them. Miraculous signs, <clears throat> excuse me, weren't enough to convince them. That's why I started with this question of if, if God could, if, if you could have God do anything for you, what would it be? And along with that, have you ever entertained the idea that, that if God would just do such and such, so and so would believe in him? If God would just show up and do something miraculous, I think that they would finally trust in him. Here's sort of a sad truth. 
that the miraculous signs weren't enough to convince those who saw Jesus in the flesh. Up to this point, John has been making his case. He's been arguing that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you can have eternal life. And he, as part of his case, he presents seven miraculous signs. Seven extraordinary things that Jesus did in order to convince people to believe in him. And then we read these words in verse 37 as, as Jesus, and by the way, Jesus is really at this point, uh, he's beginning to wind down his ministry among the general public. Shortly after this, he's going to transition to just ministering to his few closest followers as he prepares to go to the cross. It says in verse 37, oh, uh, even though he had performed many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. What in the world is it going to take to get these people to believe? What more does Jesus have to do? He's done many miraculous signs. John John, uh, presents seven of them to us, but he tells us that there there were many, 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 many more signs than the few that he presents to us that Jesus did, and yet it's not enough to convince them. Not long before this, Jesus actually rose from the dead, one of their very own, Lazarus. Many of them were there. Are you telling me they still didn't believe after they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? It says, even though he'd performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. Let me be clear about Let me try to be clear about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying regarding miraculous signs. This is maybe a bit of a parenthetical point. Signs aren't necessarily the be-all, end-all in the church. You know, a lot of churches, their their obsession, their, their constant pursuit is to see God do miraculous signs. Well, we can see the weakness of that pursuit here in this passage, but... That being said, signs were an extremely important part of Jesus' ministry. John said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence, this, this is from the end of his gospel, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of his entire gospel. That's why he wrote this book in part to show us the miraculous signs that Jesus did and that by seeing, that by, in a sense, actually in reality, in, by reading about the miraculous signs that Jesus did, we would believe in him and have eternal life. Signs are an important part of Jesus' ministry. They were import, an important part of the early church and the spreading of the gospel. And during the first century, we see the gospel spreading many times being accompanied by miraculous signs as confirmation that this gospel was from God. See the book of Acts. And I believe, and many many still do, that God still does miraculous things today. He still does miraculous things today according to his will and according to his purpose. But miraculous signs are not something that we can command on demand. It's not something that we can make happen, and they are not the be-all, end-all. People still reject Jesus in the face of miraculous signs. We see examples of this all throughout Scripture. 
In fact, one of the things that's happening here in John chapter 12 goes back, ties back to the, the response of the Jewish people to God doing miraculous signs in the Old Testament, starting all the way back in with Moses. We see that God delivers the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt through miraculous signs. And what did they do immediately after that? They disobeyed and they refused to believe. And then we see them in the desert, God still doing miraculous signs. And what do they continue to do? They disobey and they disbelieve. We see examples of this all throughout scripture. People see God do the miraculous and they still don't believe. And so what is needed? Well, we'll get to that. Here's an interesting parable that Jesus tells during his earthly ministry. He tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I'll just try to summarize it real quick. But basically, you have two people who are dead, one who is faithful to God in life and one who is unfaithful. And the the faithful uh, man is being comforted and he's in a good place now. And the, the man who is unfaithful, who's known as the rich man here, the other man known as Lazarus, the man who's a rich man is in torment and he's suffering. And he enters into a conversation with Abraham And the rich man asked Abraham to do a miraculous sign to convince his family to believe. So he's died and he's now in torment, but he has family members who are uh, still alive and he wants them not to suffer the same fate. So he asks Abraham, would you go do a miraculous sign? Abraham responds that they should listen to the scriptures. When given these two these two means of convincing somebody to believe, the rich man wants them to see a miraculous sign. Abraham says, no, they should believe the scriptures. The rich man says that if someone goes to them from the dead, which would be a miraculous sign, then they will listen. And Abraham says, if they don't believe the scriptures, then they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus tells that story It's a fictitious story. It's a parable. He tells that story before raising Lazarus from the dead, which we're now seeing was not enough to convince people to believe. Before Jesus himself dies, he's crucified, he he dies, he's buried, and himself rises from the dead, and people still don't believe. If If Lazarus being risen from the dead wasn't enough to convince people, And if Jesus himself rising from the dead wasn't enough to convince people, safe to say, miraculous signs aren't always enough to convince people. But here's the problem. Let's go back to, that was end of my parenthetical point about miraculous signs. Um, To summarize, they're good, but they're not the be all end all. But to go back to the Gospel of John and what's happening here, where it says, even though he'd performed many signs in their presence and they did not believe in him, we have, a, we have a bit of a problem in John's Gospel now. John says that Jesus did these things in order that people might believe. What's the problem? It didn't work. Jesus' ministry has failed. Jesus came to convince the world of his deity through miraculous signs and through his inspired teaching, and yet the people still did not believe. 
Has God failed? Has his ingenious plan to bring mankind back to him, which he conceived of long ago, before the foundations of the world were laid, and this plan that he's, he's given so much to carry out, he has sent his son into the world in order to accomplish, to bring about the belief of the people that he desires to redeem back to himself. And they still reject him. They still don't want him. Nothing has changed among the people that God has called his own. John told us in the beginning of his gospel that this would happen. He said that light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John, you lied. (laughs) You lied. Darkness has overcome the light. Unless there's more to the story, of course. Unless there's more that still needs to happen. So let's keep reading. It says in verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, okay, so why is this happening? Why don't the people believe? Why in the face of such convincing, miraculous signs do people still not believe? John tells us, he says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, it says, this is why they were unable to believe because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Boy, that's, that's a tricky passage. There's a lot going on here that we need to think about. But the, but the, the main thing is, is that I want, to, I want to, to show us that even though they didn't believe, it doesn't mean that God has failed. It doesn't mean that the plan didn't work. This indeed is part of the plan. Why is it part of the plan? Well, I think there's at least one major point being made here in this passage. And it's the next thing on the handout. It is not the obedience of man that brings about salvation, but the obedience of Jesus. It's not the obedience of man that brings about salvation, but the obedience of Jesus. So we see here that the depth of the problem that man has with his creator. That even if God were to do the most miraculous thing possible, send his son into the world, through his son, communicate his message. I mean, what more could you ask for? So many people say, well, if God would just show up and speak to me, he did do that 2,000 years ago, and it didn't work. It didn't convince people. Not yet. Because it's not the obedience of man that brings about salvation, it's the obedience of Jesus. In other words, God is going to show us the depth of man's brokenness. He's going to show us the depth of man's sinfulness. And he's going to show us the depth of Jesus' obedience. Man's contribution to salvation is his sinful rebellion and rejection of God that makes it necessary. That's what we contribute to salvation. 
We make it necessary. (laughs) Our sinfulness and our, our rebellion, our rejection of God is what makes salvation necessary. That's the extent of our contribution. Beyond that, we've done nothing to contribute to our own salvation. We see here that God allows the sinfulness of man to reach its fullest measure. The rejection of the Son of God who is sent to save them. And he uses their rebellion to carry out his work of salvation as they would betray and crucify Jesus. So at the same time, he's, he's, he's letting mankind slide into the greatest depth of rebellion that, that he possibly can, the rejection of the very Son of God. No greater sin has ever been or could ever be committed than to reject Jesus Christ sent by God to save us. That's the greatest sin. And every one of them is doing it right now. They're refusing to believe. Even Jesus' closest disciples, this is one of the things that John's really setting up in chapter 12, is that Jesus' closest disciples, his, his best friends, his closest followers, are going to betray him. They're going to turn their backs on him. Because it's not the obedience of man that brings about salvation. It's the obedience of Jesus John quotes two places from the book of Isaiah. This is important though. If you want to understand these few verses that we're looking at here, you have to understand the connection back to Isaiah. A lot of times, um, a lot of Bibles, I think the CSB does this um, pretty regularly. There might be versions of the CSB that don't do this. CSB is the Christian Standard Bible. That's the Bible that we preach from and that we often... Um, a lot of us use regularly. The CSB, oftentimes, when there's a quotation of an Old Testament scripture in the New Testament, it'll put it in bold type. And so if you, if you have a print Bible in front of you, you'll notice that we have some bold type here. And in between verses 38 and 40, John is actually quoting two different places in the book of Isaiah. Why the book of Isaiah? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Isaiah was a prophet who, who was told at his call into ministry that he was being sent to prophesy to people who would not respond positively to his message. That was the, that was the job description that God gave him. You're going to prophesy to these people and they'll just flat out reject it. That's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I'm sending you to, uh, to, into a ministry in which every day you're going to fail. Nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to respond. And Isaiah does it anyhow. And there's reasons for that, of course. It says in verse 40, he has, this is one quotation from the book of Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. That is, that is a quotation uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, something very significant happens. God reveals his glory to the prophet Isaiah. This is actually Isaiah's call into ministry. He reveals his glory and he says, you're going to go to these people, but he tells them that their eyes have been blinded and their hearts have been hardened so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Why does God do that back in Isaiah's ministry 
And why does John quote that as applicable to Jesus' ministry? Why would God send a messenger to somebody and simultaneously harden their hearts in order to not be able to respond to that message? Well, if again, this is where we have to understand what's happening in Isaiah. In the time of Isaiah, God is ready to judge his people. He has given his people opportunity to respond to, them, to him and to his word, and they are being unresponsive. They are continuing in rebellion against him, and God has decided this is the time to pour out his judgment upon them. And so in his judgment, he hardens their hearts so that they would not receive his mercy, and then he's going to pour out his wrath on them. That's basically what's going to happen. The other connection that, that John makes, and, and then we'll tie these two together. Let's just get them both out there. The other connection that John makes to Isaiah's ministry is he, he points here uh, in, let's see, verse 38. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These words actually come from Isaiah 53, which you may recognize as a prophecy about the suffering servant. It's a prophecy that Jesus would fulfill in his earthly ministry. And so John, having now seen all of this come to pass, you got to remember, John is writing a couple of decades later after Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, after the gospel has begun to spread through, throughout the world. He's, he's now, by, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tying things together. He's showing us what he did not see at the time. John was one of the disciples who betrayed Jesus at the time of his arrest. But now he, he, he can see, because one in part because Jesus, after his death, came and he explained all of this to the apostles. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's saying, oh, Isaiah 53 was talking about Jesus. Jesus' words, what, what Isaiah says as the message, Lord, who has believed our message? Jesus' words and his work, what Isaiah says as the arm of the Lord, that's, that's a phrase that, that means the work of the Lord, his works. Jesus' words and his work have been rejected. God sent his son to testify with his mouth, with his words, and to testify with his hands, with his works, of who he is, and he has been rejected. Just like Isaiah was a few hundred years prior, and just like, I, how, just like Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be, Jesus is rejected. So what happens next? It's time for God to judge those who have rejected him. It's time for God to, to, to judge those who have already by themselves hardened their hearts. They have chosen not to believe. Now God is going to further harden their hearts so that his wrath can justly be poured out. So what does it mean that God hardens their hearts? What does it mean that they were unable to believe that he blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts? This is, of course, an important theological question. 
Are we unable to respond to the gospel? Are certain people unable to respond to the gospel because God has hardened their hearts? Well, if that's the case, I don't believe that this scripture is actually evidence of that. What's happening here, God's hardening of the hearts of the Jewish people here, just like in Isaiah's time, is an act of judgment, sometimes called judicial hardening. Judicial hardening is is a hardening that takes place after they have already self-hardened their hearts. And and, And God does this to accomplish his purpose of judgment. In Isaiah's day, that meant that the people of Israel we're, we're going to be punished by other nations. In Jesus' day, and with the people of Jesus' time, this takes on whole new meaning. But first, let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah asked God how long would he judge his people in this way. So God reveals himself to Isaiah. He says, look, I want you to go to these people and declare my message to them. But oh, by the way, I'm hardening their hearts because it's time to judge them not time to save them. And Isaiah, troubled by this, he asked God, how long will you judge your people in this way? And God responded, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. In Isaiah's day, what God is about to do is he is about to pour out his wrath and his judgment upon his people so thoroughly that everything they own will be destroyed. Their cities will be uninhabitable. Their possessions will be in ruins. They will be driven out of the land. Why is God doing this? Because he's a perfectly just God. And a perfectly just God is ready to give them what their sin deserves. That's why he does this. He's completely just in doing it. There's nothing unfair whatsoever about what he is doing. He has violated their law. They they have violated his law again and again and again. They have resisted and refused his attempts to bring them back to him. He has sent messenger after messenger to plead with them. They will not turn and obey. So now it's time to judge. How long will you do this, Isaiah asks? God's answer could be summed up this way, until judgment is complete. So, what's happening in Jesus' day? Let's, let's come back to John chapter 12. Why is John bringing up all of this Isaiah imagery and all of this Isaiah language? Because John recognizes that what God is doing in Jesus' time is basically the same thing of what he did in Isaiah's time with one major difference. The similarity is that God is now ready to pour out his full wrath for the sins of mankind. The difference is that this time, the recipient of that wrath is not going to be the people who have sinned and justly deserve it. 
The difference this time is that the Son of God is going to take their place. His judgment will be complete. His wrath will be completely satisfied. Because this time a suitable sacrifice will take their place and absorb the punishment for sin and God's judgment for sin will be eternally completed. Listen to what Isaiah said of this time as he prophesied about Jesus' suffering. He says in Isaiah 53, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what we heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was despised and rejected by men, a man suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. What is happening here in John chapter 12 is that man is displaying how utterly sinful he is. Man is displaying the depth of his rebellion against God, his creator. Man has rejected the son of God. It's time. It's time for wrath. It's time for judgment. The just God must carry out justice. But the just God is merciful. And this time, Instead of, instead of pouring out judgment for sin upon the people who deserve it, Jesus is going to step in and he's going to take our place. And God is going to pour out his wrath on his son. How long? Remember when Isaiah asked that question? How long? Until it's complete. few days later, Jesus, hanging on the cross, will say some of the most meaningful words that humanity could ever hear. He will say, it is finished. God has done what his justice makes necessary and what his mercy desires He has poured out his wrath for sin and he has done it in a way that allows him to redeem his people back to him. That allows a door open that through which people can come and receive salvation though they deserve judgment. 
Someone has already taken it in their place. That someone being Jesus, the very son of God. That's what's going on here in John chapter 12. That's that's why John references back to Isaiah. He wants us to see these. He doesn't have time, he doesn't have time and space to quote all, all of Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. So he just quotes the first verse, assuming, and this is often the case throughout Scripture, when you see an Old Testament uh, quotation, it's good to go back and read the full context of that. Because in most cases, the, the writer had in mind not just the quoted verse, but the full context. Certainly that's the case here. He, he doesn't just want us to see verse 1. He wants us to see all of 1 through 12, that this is Jesus taking the wrath for our sins upon himself. But there's a couple more things here. The next one is this, if you're looking at your handout. The next one is, Revelation accomplishes what miraculous signs didn't. Okay, if, if miraculous signs weren't the thing that convinced them, what does convince them? Well, I want to make the case from this passage that revelation, not miraculous signs. You can have miraculous signs and not have revelation and still not believe. That's clear from this passage. Revelation is what convinces. As John goes on to say, let me read... Verse 40 says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Why wasn't Isaiah more uncomfortable with what God told him to go do? Not, I don't know, maybe he was and it just wasn't recorded, but why doesn't Isaiah object Isaiah receives this call from God to go on this mission, which is going to be totally ineffective. All it's going to do is it's going to bring about the wrath of God upon the people of God. Why doesn't Isaiah say, no, I don't want to do that. That does, that's not fair. That's not good. Why would we do that? The answer is he doesn't object because he saw his glory. He had revelation. In the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, The glory of God is revealed to him. Why is he not uncomfortable with God's harsh punishment of judgment? Because he had seen the glory of God. And if you see the glory of God, you understand that punishment for sin is the proper response. In the presence of God, he saw not only the necessity of God's judgment on others, but first and foremost, he saw the necessity of God's judgment upon himself. What does Isaiah say when he sees God's glory? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined and I have seen the king. Isaiah comes face to face with the tremendous gap between God's glorious righteousness and man's unrighteousness. People... You, you hear people just carelessly say things like, and eh, when I stand before God, I got some questions for him. I want to ask him about all that. I got, I'm, you know, people got a bone to pick with God. They act like they're going to call him into account. Why didn't you do something about this? Anytime we see in Scripture someone who comes face to face with the glory of God, they no longer have any bones to pick. Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm the problem here. I'm the one that has something to worry about. 
I have seen the king. Same thing with John. Why doesn't John object to God's judgment of the people he's writing about in chapter 12? Because he too has seen the glory of God. He has at this point, and at the point of writing his, his gospel, he has seen the resurrected Jesus. And he knows that, that God was right and just to do this. Furthermore, he's seen God's mercy. Revelation brings belief. Revelation brings confidence in God. When you see who he is, when you see him as he truly is, when he's revealed to you in scripture, you become convinced God is not the problem. We are. Therefore, when he pours out judgment, it's just. And when he pours out mercy, it's glorious. One more. I'll just take a few minutes on this last point. Revelation accomplishes what miraculous signs didn't. The last one is secret faith will not do. It's interesting where John goes with this whole thing. He talks, he talks about how Jesus had done many miraculous signs in the presence, yet they didn't believe. And then he goes into this Isaiah language, and he talks about why this is happening, that God has hardened their hearts because he is about to pour out his judgment, just like in the time of Isaiah, but with one major difference, and that difference being that this time, it's not the people who deserve it who are going to receive the judgment. It's the one who doesn't deserve it. It's the Son of God. Jesus himself is going to receive the judgment. And then he brings this all the way around. After saying many didn't believe, he says in verse 42, nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. So we've talked about this a lot as we've gotten into this part of the Gospel of John, but let me just real quickly say again, there's this major, major issue between Jesus and the Jewish rulers, specifically uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, are having a big problem with Jesus. They're going to involve the Sanhedrin. These are the Jewish rulers, okay? These are the people that have authority over the Jewish people at that time, specifically in religious matters, and they have a problem with Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They don't believe Jesus. They don't want Jesus there, and they've, they've, they've actually been working on a plan to arrest and have him killed. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. So there's, there's, a, there's some, well, John says many, even among the rulers who have believed, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. Okay, Understandable. They didn't want to lose their livelihood. They didn't want to lose their position. Maybe they thought, well, if they just keep it on the down low, maybe they can do more good from the inside than if they were kicked out. Maybe they had good motives, except for John tells us what their motives are. Verse 43, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. That won't do. In light, of, in light of what God has done in sending his son to absorb the wrath that you and I deserve to be punished in our place, secret faith just won't do. We cannot, we cannot love human praise more than God's approval and be genuine followers of Christ. We can't be secret 
Christians, ashamed, afraid that someone might find out that we're Jesus freaks. We must love God more than we love praise from man. You remember what Jesus said in in Mark chapter 8? I'll read it to you. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, he says, It says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You and I also live in an adulterous and sinful generation. And Jesus makes clear, those who are ashamed of him at a time like this, those who would prefer to conceal their belief in Jesus than be known by it. Those people would not receive a warm welcome from Jesus. Jesus was rejected. Even by his closest followers, even by the people he came to save. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps, to be willing to, to be willing to be rejected by men. To be willing to perhaps lose some friendships or some relationships because we refuse to compromise when it comes to following Jesus. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think of... I think of what happens with the disciples. Even though they rejected Jesus, he restores them after his resurrection. And then he pours out his spirit upon them. And for the most part, though they still make many mistakes in this regard, for the most part they become emboldened to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, we hear about Peter and John. They're being told by the religious leaders to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. Their plan to arrest Jesus and have him crucified has been carried out, but these people still won't stop talking about Jesus. Peter and John said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In light of what Jesus has done on our behalf in light of the fact that when the, for the last time until, let's say, the end of time, God decides it's time to pour out his wrath, and Jesus steps in and on our behalf takes the punishment for our sins. In light of that, and in light, in light of, of what he has called us to, secret faith just won't do. We must be bold. I don't mean obnoxious. There's a fine line between bold and obnoxious. But we must be unashamed. We must be willing to suffer. We must be willing to lose friends. We must be willing to be ridiculed in this age of unbelief. 
That's what Jesus calls us to, to be bold in our faith. One way to boldly declare your faith is through baptism. And uh, I want to share with you that, that we're hoping to do a, another public baptism this fall. And so if you've, never, if you've never publicly declared your faith through baptism, I'd encourage you to, to reach out to us. Let us know. You can even use the, the Connect card to let us know that you're interested in baptism. But it goes far beyond that. It's a day-to-day willingness to be known as a follower of Jesus, a willingness to be known as a disciple of Jesus. Is that you? Have you, have you made a profession of faith that has been known publicly? Do people know you're a Christian? Let me ask it in this way. Do they know you're here right now? <laughs> if you're going to church and, and you're like, man, I like going to church on Sunday, but I hope my friends don't find out or I hope so-and-so don't find out. Man, just rid yourself of, 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 of that shame and be willing to be known as a Christ follower. Be, be willing to suffer if that's what it takes. For most of us, suffering comes in a very small package. We don't have to suffer in the ways that many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. But are you willing? Because secret faith will not do.